Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With your WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened in the week of WWE before we provide you with an ultimate preview for WWE Fastlane, one of the final three main roster premium live events of 2023. We have, as always, an absolutely loaded show for you today, but we've also had an absolutely loaded week for you right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So off the top, I actually want to remind you about some of the podcasts that are already published and in your feed waiting for you. First, episode 500. Not only did Vintage Chris Vanini and the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, not only did we celebrate that achievement, but we welcomed none other than the American Dragon, Brian Danielson, for a special 30-minute conversation. If you have not heard that yet, please go into the feed and listen to it. Also, this weekend, we delivered not one, but two instant analysis podcasts, first on Saturday, NXT No Mercy, and then on Sunday, AEW Wrestle Dream. Spoiler alert, the Silver King gave both A-minus grades. In other words, it is completely worthwhile to not only watch those shows, but to listen to the instant analysis episodes as well. We also have a loaded week coming up for you here on Getting Over. Not only are we hitting you with the WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview here on Tuesday, we will have a bonus episode with a very special guest on Wednesday. Then we are coming back on Thursday with your AEW and NXT episode. And of course, Saturday night, as soon as WWE Fastlane goes off the air, we will have another instant analysis podcast for you. So yes, a four-episode week coming off of a five-episode week right here on Getting Over. You know it. You love it. That is what we deliver to you. All we ask, it's not really that much, is that you remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. And head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review because if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And Chris, I got to tell you, we got a hell of a five-star review this past week on Apple Podcasts that I cannot wait to read right now. So this is for, I think it's meant to be Sirius Lee, S-R-S-Lee. The Hey Now is what it's called. Five stars. This was posted on Sunday. Adam and Chris are fantastic hosts. They engage with their listeners, have interviews with the wrestlers and staff, and are just funny and entertaining. I listen to them as I work in medical manufacturing and enjoy reacting much the same way as these hosts. If I do not agree with Adam or Chris, they are very detailed and well-spoken as to why they have their opinions, which keeps me intrigued and engaged with the show. To be professional and personal, friendly and formal, spontaneous and serious. I have never wanted to interact with or even felt the ability to interact with hosts of a podcast before. My boyfriend also listens and engages with this podcast, and it is something we've bonded over the last three and a half years. I hope Adam and Chris grow in their podcasting endeavors and are able to keep a corner of the wrestling fandom civilized and healthy. And now to continue to plot on how to get on the pod. What? I just have to get a getting over sign on a show? I was already planning that. (laughs) These guys are too good. I mean... What a freaking review. I, I thank you so much. Seriously, that 
was fantastic. Means a lot. Very touching. Um, everything you said, that is what we strive to achieve here on getting over and coming off our 500th episode. Uh, the interview with Brian Danielson, uh, the uh, work, the amount of work that, you know, I'll, just, I'll do a little Barry Horowitz that I put in uh, this weekend covering those shows while football was going on. A really busy season for both of us, Chris got to enjoy a concert uh, while I was doing the heavy lifting here. But besides all that, to, to get that kind of review coming off of a really busy and stressful week, it meant a lot. I appreciate it. And I acknowledge you. Acknowledge. acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. You got anything to say, Chris, on that uh, a hell of a five-star review? Yeah, really appreciate that, uh, hearing that. And, and thanks to everybody for all the feedback we got on the 500th episode. And True, everybody yes. who's been with us along this ride. It meant a lot just to hear it from uh, from everybody, uh, especially that review there as well. So um, big thanks to everybody. Yeah, all the tweets, all the DMs about episode 500. I mean, can't appreciate you guys enough. Um, it's been fantastic. And I'm glad that you were able to enjoy that episode as much as Chris and I enjoyed putting it together, despite all the stressors that we experienced actually doing it. Uh, let me also continue with some reminders off the top of the show. If you don't already, please follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. We also post parts of the shows that they don't air on television because cable networks cut them off. My point is uh, we posted the 30 seconds of the Johnny Gargano return uh, this Tuesday morning, so be sure to watch that at some point. Um, but we do all that stuff. We also post polls ahead of and following premium live events and pay-per-views. That way you can contribute your pre and post-show grades and those factor into our analysis on our instant analysis episodes. Again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You get all that good stuff and you get to vote in the polls as well. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well for $5 a month, 50 for the entire year. You can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash Getting Over. Sign up. You get bonus audio instant reactions to the four major shows every single week. And you get news posts every single Friday, except the last one. I told you I was stressed and busy, uh, but you get them pretty much every week. Let's call it 48 out of 52 weeks a year. And I'll try to throw some extras in there as well to make up for uh, the ones I miss. Um, but it's a great little community we have over there. And if you're not part of it yet, I certainly hope that you join soon. Chris, I know that was a long intro. Welcome to the show. We both have time commitments today, so we're not going to rush through the show, but I do want to skip over the pleasantries as we kick things off. Um, so welcome. I'm glad you're here. Let's go ahead before we get to the main event, before we get to the good, the bad and the ugly, and then before we get to the WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview. And by the way, there will be timestamps in the episode description for all of these segments. If anyone happens to be listening to this Friday or Saturday uh, before the show and you just want to hear the Ultimate Preview, you can skip to it. I hope you don't. Nevertheless, timestamps do exist. Before we get to any of that stuff, though, there was a big piece of professional wrestling news that went down Sunday uh, with Edge now known by his real name, Adam Copeland, debuting in AEW on the Wrestle Dream show. Now, we discussed this, or I discussed this at length on the Wrestle Dream Instant Analysis podcast, so please go listen to that from Sunday if you want all of my takes on the debut, the fact that he's able to use the Rated R Superstar gimmick, uh, the entrance, the theme, the initial presentation, all of that. I talk about it on that show. So Chris, I figured it was worth letting you share your thoughts here at the start of the podcast. 
And there are some tangential topics we can cover uh, before we get going with this WWE episode. But what were your initial thoughts seeing what went down on Sunday? Yeah, like, like you mentioned, I was uh, I was at a death camp for cutie slash postal service uh, reunion concert that I had gotten tickets for way back. Uh, so I didn't see Wrestle Dream. I have not seen it yet. I did listen to the reaction podcast you did. I have seen many rave reviews for it. I did see the Edge moment. And my first thought is it's really cool just to, again, to see Edge in AEW and the possibilities and the things that could come. I'm excited to see what uh, ideas they have down the road because I really hope they have ideas and plans in place. Um, uh, having Edge, I'm, I'm just going to keep calling him Edge, not Adam Cole, <laughs> whatever. I did that. Uh, I did that on Sunday the, as well. I wasn't used to it. Yeah, I did the same thing. Look, we're going to call him Edge. It's just a lot easier to say. Uh, to have the entrance music, to do everything the same is the absolute correct way to handle that whole thing. Like, that's what we know, Edge. And look, I've made the comment that Edge is more of a more of an entrance and an idea than a worker. And so it makes sense to uh, keep all that stuff. Um, it's, again, good to have two competing wrestling companies to make these possibilities happen. Uh, my, my only other thought was that I wish it was a true surprise. I mean, it had been right. leaked out for a while. It had been talked about even the, even the, the, the intro they did for him. They basically, you knew it was him before he walked out. Mm -hmm. It would have been more fun to just have the music hit. Right. That's always my thing. But, uh, overall pretty cool. Yeah. The moment was so dragged out with the people that were in the ring. Like you just knew, even if you had an inkling that he might show up. It was like so blatantly obvious by this main eventing the show and going as long as it did and the beatdown happening the way as it did. I addressed most of this already on the show. I will say there is one um, piece of irony that I can't wait to see play out, and it is this. Uh, when Edge was doing his thing in WWE on this run and then you know AEW signed Christian, and especially once Christian actually figured out what he was doing over there, there were a lot of people that came out of the woodwork kind of saying, oh, I always liked Christian better than Edge. Christian was always better than Edge, both on the mic and yeah. in the ring. And and I'm glad, we, you know, that we, quote unquote, AEW, uh, have Christian and I'd much prefer him to Edge. So I really am going to be curious to find out if those tones change now that Edge is also in AEW or if people are going to maintain the exact same thing, because the way it's been talked about right now is this is a game changer. He's as big as CM Punk and all this type of stuff where no. that was not the tone and tenor of this conversation before he debuted in AEW. Let me just say that. Agree. And no, and Edge is not as big as CM Punk, um, but AEW, you know, AEW is OK as a company. They're fine, but they need something to, to jump them again. Uh, with ticket sales and ratings and edge will do that. And, uh, but not to the level of CM Punk, which is totally fair. So uh, we'll see. I thought edges WWE run, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, kind of, as he said, his sort of goodbye was okay. Solid, not, not a regular main event type of guy to me, but uh, uh, still very, very solid. Right. This should definitely be good for their business. And certainly we will find out the impact that it has. I did want to read a part of a Twitter thread that Edge posted literally minutes after our instant analysis podcast went live on Sunday night because it is worth dissecting a little bit. And don't worry, like he posted four really long tweets. I'm just going to I truncated it down to a paragraph. So I'm just going to read that. He said, 
I love WWE and appreciate everything the company did for me. Always have, always will. Sometimes relationships just grow apart and I feel the WWE and I have outgrown each other. I wanted to do more. They didn't have much more for me to do. Simple as that, and that's okay. It's exciting that there's viable companies providing wrestling on national and worldwide platforms. If you're actually a fan of wrestling and not acronyms, that should make you happy too. Again, that's a small portion of a larger thread that he posted. And to the second part of that, well said, and I'm glad that he went out there and put that into the ethers, into the universe. Um, Hey, wrestling is supposed to be fun. There's two companies. It's better for the performers, which means that you as fans should be happy if you are actually happy for us. Now, this entire statement that I read couples with comments he made during the Wrestle Dream scrum. And he's also done interviews saying that, number one, the retirement consideration was real. He also claims he did not actually make the AEW deal until after his WWE contract expired. And that conversations that he had with Christian and FTR before that were only casual. He also said that he's going to be doing a full-time run in AEW. And that's in contrast to WWE wanting to keep him as a special attraction, even though he claims he wanted to do more. That leads me to first question, how long of a contract he signed with AEW if he was really that close to retirement, but is now turning it around and going full-time. That is a drastic difference in terms of career planning, going from not doing anything anymore to a much tougher, heavier schedule than what you had been doing. Those are polar opposites. So maybe it's like a two-year deal or something like that. But all of that leads me to this. And I briefly mentioned this on the incident analysis. The shame isn't that he left WWE. It's that WWE really did not use him well, and he could have used him better while he was there. If you have Edge, and if you believe what he is saying, and he was willing to be either a full-timer or mostly a full-timer, why would you not use him the way that you use Rey Mysterio? You still keep him strong, you have him win most things, but you also have him put a lot of younger people or up-and-coming featured stars over. All of these guys they are trying to build up, and I'm just throwing out names here, Montez Ford, Chad Gable, whomever, why weren't they having matches with Edge on TV? Why is he beating Finn Balor inside Hell in a Cell in a moment where if Balor beat him, could have completely elevated him and would have made even more sense than it already did for him to win the World Heavyweight Championship from Seth Rollins? Why is Edge not having his final match going out on his back against someone who can benefit from it rather than beating Sheamus who may himself be on his way out of WWE when his contract expires. Why would you not have him on TV regularly? I'm sure that the idea with the Judgment Day, which obviously didn't work in his vision and has really thrived without him, I'm sure that was the plan, though, for him to regularly be on TV with a faction. But even though that didn't work, look at what WWE did just recently, the last couple of months, with Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark. Could they really not have given Edge a young talent like that to bring up alongside him, work in a tag team, work in feuds the same way where he, the younger talent does the dirty work and Edge is the one you know, being the puppeteer behind the scenes. I'm not here to say that WWE wasted his run. And look, injuries and the pandemic played into it. There were factors 
that actually interfered with perhaps what they would have done with Edge. Unquestioned. But they could have used him better. That's no doubt. And for me, that is frustrating as a, as a fan. Yeah, my, my issue with Edge's run uh, on his last go-around was not necessarily how much he was used, but it was how he was used. We had a really long Randy Orton feud, a really long Seth Rollins feud, a Miz thing. Uh, he beats Finn Balor. He, you know, he does the Judgment Day thing. Like The Judgment Day idea was there and it kind of worked, but it ultimately got better once he left it. I, Whenever you have someone like that come back, I want to see them just popping in and out of everything, getting around as much talent as they can, which is exactly what they're doing with John Cena right now. Right. You know, him and LA Knight together. So like that, that's, I, I was confused by Edge's, a lot of the use of Edge during this run, injuries aside, and clearly he felt the same. Yeah. I think that is fair. On the back end of this, we can get out on this. Something I mentioned weeks ago, and you and I discussed when we theorized Edge moving to AEW, was even if it was a slim chance, Edge going to AEW being the one thing that to me would increase the possibility of CM Punk arriving back in WWE. And it has been pointed out to me, and certainly these are things that I noticed, but I kind of just brushed off a little bit, that there have possibly, again, possibly, been CM Punk references on WWE TV recently. They said best in the world last week and maybe also two weeks ago. Uh, This Monday, there was a mention of puppets and puppeteers, which comes from a famous Ring of Honor promo that Punk once cut. It wasn't verbatim, but it was Hmm. similar. And I believe all of this has been during Seth Rollins segments. So that is absolutely something to watch. And just to reiterate, I've said this so many times, but I will say it again here. I would not rehire CM Punk if I was WWE. But if they do, number one, I understand it from a business standpoint. And number two, it is a far better environment with a far greater likelihood for something to work because he can be the special attraction that WWE made Edge or an in-and-out mercenary like a Brock Lesnar who shows up, does his segment, and leaves and does not have to be in the locker room, and does not have to work with the other talent and all that type of stuff, and also someone who does not have any shred of power that can get him into trouble beyond what he does in the ring and what he does on the mic. Now, look, there is an inherent risk with giving CM Punk a live mic. You would have to think that he would be smart enough to realize that WWE will cut him like a bad habit if he fucks up because they don't give a shit, unlike Tony Khan, who, of course, was a fanboy of his. So I just think it's something worth monitoring. Let's see if similar references or if there are other Phrases that are used on WWE TV that perhaps point to Phil Brooks, because again, if there was a reason for WWE to go after him and bring in a talent of his name value, having someone like Edge go to AEW, that is the type of situation that could precede a response by WWE to keep themselves in the universe as we had the bigger debut this year, we had the bigger surprise, so on and so forth. 
I guess I, I've never been of the thought that WWE needs to do something in response to AEW because one, they don't compete on the same night. Two, WWE is as big as it's ever been and what have you. But but maybe maybe it is. I, I will say, and I said when CM Punk got fired from AEW, I would like to see CM Punk back in WWE because he's interesting and entertaining, sometimes in good and bad ways. And as a viewer, that interests me. I also said as a if I was management, I would absolutely not hire him because he has twice gotten <laughs> physical altercations and right. shown a uh, dismissal of leadership uh, multiple times. And now that you're a big publicly traded company with a whole big corporate structure bigger than WWE, that's very high risk for places that don't normally take such high risk. But you're right. The Seth Rollins point outs are interesting. The puppet line with Seth Rollins and Michael Cole did seem kind of weird to mm -hmm. me. Maybe maybe it's looking into it too much, but it is something I guess we'll have to keep an eye on moving forward. I hope it happens. I'd love for it to happen. I also don't think WWE needs to do it. So I agree with you. They do not need to respond to AEW and largely they haven't historically, but there is something to be said for, hey, if there's a talent out there and the timing works, why would we not do it? Especially when your, your com competition, and I know that, they say they compete with Netflix and Amazon and the NFL, and, and it's true, they do. These are all factual things. But there is something to be said for, hey, they made a bunch of headlines. Well, we were going to do this anyway, or let, like, let's make believe they were going to do it anyway, and he was going to show up at the Royal Rumble. And they're like, you know what? Survivor Series is in Chicago. Why wouldn't we just do it in Survivor Series? Like, You know what I mean? That is the type of scenario where I'm, I'm thinking about them from a competition standpoint. But you are right. Edge going to AEW. It's a silo type of situation. It is interesting for fans of professional wrestling, just like Jeff Hardy going over there was interesting for fans of professional wrestling. It's not like they got Seth Rollins or Roman Reigns. You know, they got a guy who's 50, who has done this, who just had multiple matches in WWE. So it's not like it's not like they took him out of retirement like they did with CM Punk, which was completely different, also different because CM Punk was an anti WWE guy. Edge is not. Edge is a WWE Hall of Famer who I'm quite sure will re-sign with them once his AEW deal ends, whether it's a Legends contract, whether it's for one final match at WrestleMania, whatever the case might be. So different scenario. You're right. I just wanted to remind everyone that we did point out when we discussed the possibility of CM Punk, we said, hey, you know, if they do sign Edge, if AEW does sign Edge, I mean, that is the type of thing that increases the possibility. Doesn't mean it's a response. It just, for me, made it more likely. The one the one other thing I'll say about response is that WWE did just sign Jade Cargill, you know? Like True. From yeah. AEW. So they did get a big person from there and, and they continue to promote her on Raw and SmackDown. So that is, they are treating that like a big get from AEW. And you know what? One of the reasons why they're promoting it the way they are, again, it's not about a response, but this was this is stepping in front of it, basically. Um, they may have gotten wind that Edge was going there. I'm quite sure he told people, and I'm quite sure WWE higher-ups knew that he was going to debut in AEW. So they may have said, well, if we're signing Jade Cargill, and our plan is, let's make believe the plan was going to be to debut her at the Royal Rumble after three months of training in the Performance Center, we should probably announce ahead of AEW making their big splash that we got this big talent. And again, they utilize the media to tell people that she came from AEW. They weren't going to say that themselves. Yeah. So 
that's another level to this as well. And again, is it a response? Is it just smart business? I don't think it really matters. It's just interesting that all of this is transpiring in this window because there hasn't really been any major AEW signings. I want to make sure I'm not like getting something wrong here. But since the Brian Danielson, Adam Cole back to back at what was that all out like two years ago at this point, three years ago. Um, So it's been a long time for them. So this is really the first time that they've had that. Yeah. And all in all, it's, it's, it's good for fans in the end. And that's what matters most. All right, Chris. So with that, let's get into the week in WWE. And then of course, WWE Fastlane ultimate preview at the end of the show. Quick overview of Raw and SmackDown this week. I guess Triple H has figured it out a little bit because this for me was the second straight go home Raw that fully hit. Like this was a tremendous episode of TV on a Monday night. And what impressed me most is it came without Kevin Owens, without Sami Zayn, with Becky Lynch only doing a quick backstage segment, even Cody Rhodes and Jey Uso only got a couple of minutes. Those are five major featured names. We talk about almost oversaturating Raw on occasion. They were barely or not at all used on this show. And I thought Raw still delivered. And then SmackDown on Friday, by contrast, you guys know I'm just not as big of a fan of SmackDown. I thought it was overly mediocre. A couple standout moments, but not nearly as complete a show as we got on Raw Monday night. I'm the opposite, actually. Wow. Uh, I enjoyed SmackDown. I just naturally enjoy the two-hour show on a Friday night when I'm not working as well. But my biggest surprise with Raw continues to be that basically since NFL Monday Night Football started, we've barely gotten any Cody Rhodes like every week. Agreed. It's very strange. Becky Lynch hurt, but she's been in and out doing NXT stuff. Kevin Owens wasn't there again, like you said. It's been so Judgment Day heavy for a month plus now and I like Judgment Day but I'm it's it's almost too much of them and and, and the Seth Rollins segments World Heavyweight Championship he's generally getting one or two segments it's like in the middle of the show it doesn't feel like a big deal and in its place we're not getting Cody Rhodes or something we're getting just right. more Judgment Day it's just been kind of repetitive for quite a while um it's just it I don't know if it if it's an NFL Monday Night Football strategy or what but um, I'm surprised they're not leaning into those big names in response to NFL. It's an interesting point. I think they booked themselves into a corner with Seth Rollins because he's doing a back injury storyline. So if you're doing that, you can't have him wrestling every week, which is what you would normally do to combat the NFL. So that's circumstantial. But you're right, really with Cody Rhodes and Jay Uso, and they've used Jay a little bit more than Cody, but how could they not have realized, obviously, the NFL is happening and figured out a way for Cody to either be the focal point of the show or rather like he was in two segments on Monday night. He ran in for a save and he cut a 90 second promo. How can they not figure out a way for this guy to have a five minute in ring segment or get him into a match with someone that, you know, talks some shit to him backstage or insults him or uh, takes out Jay or, you know, whatever the case. So you're right. It is strange that they have really not been using their horses. But that said, I think Judgment Day has done well in the featured spot, maybe in contrast to you. And let's not forget, this is the second straight kind of B show that WWE has going into the month of November, where they basically have in their world, two A shows in the same month. So maybe that's just the natural cycle of things. And it's pretty clear the direction they're going with Cody. And just right now, they 
couldn't figure it out creatively. But hey, that's what we're here to get into. We got three segments to discuss it. Let's kick it off as we always do here on Getting Over by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So Raw started with an absolute melee. Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax were scheduled for a match, but the show opened cold with them brawling on the ramp and into the ring. Then Raquel Rodriguez ran down to join the brawl, and then Rhea Ripley ran down to join the brawl. Chaotic situation. Tons of security swarmed in to separate them. Rhea hit Riptide on a dude. It was a really cool moment because she got him like up and realized she wasn't facing the hard cam and then literally turned with this guy in her arms <laughs> and spiked his ass on the canvas, even more impressive than it otherwise would have been. Uh, then it massively calmed down after like that. Uh, Ripley grabbed the mic. She called out Judgment Day, saying they had business to settle. Finn Balor was absent. Commentary pointed that out. Ripley said there's no leader. Everyone knows that, but they all have their own responsibilities. And she's the one who makes the plans. And with her being out, that responsibility fell on Damian Priest. She got in his face saying he screwed up with Balor getting injured, Priest himself not being cleared, and Dominic Mysterio losing the North American Championship. Fans obviously cheered for that last part. Priest admitted that she was right, but pointed out Dom was the one not holding up his end of the bargain. Ripley said that she got him a rematch, Dom, against Trick Williams on NXT for the North American title. And if he doesn't come home with the championship, don't bother coming home at all. Jey Uso came out saying Ripley had bigger balls than Roman Reigns ever did. Priest tried to step to him, but Dom held him back and stepped up, reminding he's not cleared. Jay got a shot only for JD McDonough to attack, with Cody Rhodes making the save, hitting a third crossroads, I think in two weeks, on Dominic Mysterio. And then Adam Pierce set a title match for Fastlane. So this is kind of like a two-in-one analysis, because you had the opening segment, and then you had the big Judgment Day segment. The opening was easily the best thing that Nia Jax has done since returning, and it was a hot start to Raw that grabbed your attention right up against the NFL, which is not something WWE has successfully done through the last three weeks going up against Monday Night Football. Also, four big men slapping meat equals excitement. And four big women slapping meat equals excitement as well. Then you got the extended Judgment Day segment. I thought that was smart. It addressed a bunch of clear issues. Balor not being there for the go-home show. The match getting announced five days before Fastlane. Those were hardly ideal. But they told enough story in the last few weeks where there wasn't really much harm, I would say, in doing it this way. Plus, Ripley, I thought she was firing on all cylinders. And Priest, he was kind of a bad brother right here. He didn't show up for Dom on Saturday. Then he threw him under the bus to Mommy. Just, I thought it was lots of great storytelling all wrapped up together in a couple of those segments. I love this. Like you said, a lot of energy and excitement to start the show. They hadn't had that in a while. My biggest takeaway was this, was this maybe like Rhea Ripley's best promo ever? I mean, not like it's like up a, there. a certainly memorable one, but we've seen her, you know, as champion when they put her in the ring to do the, I'm just, I'm by myself kind of promo the whole time doesn't do a great job in that situation. But here, where she had Dominic and Damian Priest just to talk to, uh, really, I think, elevated her and, and gave her a, a lot. And she looked awesome. And mm -hmm. she looked in charge. She looked in control. She looked fearsome. Um, she controlled everything from that. So I, I thought she was terrific. I also continue to love the little things that Damian Priest does when he talks. He's starting to cut promos like real people talk mm -hmm. more than anybody on the roster. Like he's like 
he's not like Rhea's up in his face and he starts talking back, but he's not looking at her. He's like looking up he's, as he starts talking. And then later uh, when he starts talking to Jay, he's like got his hands on the rope and he's looking outside the ring. Like you don't normally get that. Almost every promo is like looking somebody in the eye. Yep. And he's just he continues to just communicate in these very natural ways that I think he's he's really coming through on. And, and he did a great job there. Also, uh, we got a whoop that ass chant uh, toward Dominic yes, Mysterio. So. I love that. It was great. <laughs> yeah, he continues to get incredible heat. So this was good stuff. I I do think Judgment Day has been doing a very good job. To be clear, and this is an example. Of that. Yeah, you can like what someone's doing and still think they're overexposed. Those takes can be mutually exclusive. So that totally works as far as I was concerned. One other note just with Judgment Day, because we have a couple more things to discuss. There have been factions and groups before that have elevated individual performers. I really cannot think of one that has elevated every single member simultaneously. And that's what's happening with Judgment Day. Finn Balor got re-elevated back into a main event or he didn't win the title. He should have blah, 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 but he got elevated into that. Dominic has been elevated into one of the most detestable heels in professional wrestling. Rhea Ripley has been elevated into, you could make an argument, the top one or maybe two woman in WWE. And Damian Priest has gone from pretty much a mid-carder into a guy that if and when he cashes in that Money in the Bank briefcase will be a believable champion. So I just think it's extraordinary what they've accomplished with Judgment Day. Absolutely. And it's on a, it's uh, indirectly one of Edge's uh, WWE legacies. One of Edge's greatest failures has become one of WWE's greatest successes. <laughs> it's wild the way that's happened. Uh, so yeah. Trick Williams was interviewed backstage on Raw. He was wearing a Fendi jacket that was real sharp and putting himself over. Judgment Day confronted with Ripley saying Dom wouldn't be there alone when he retakes his title on Tuesday. My assumption is J.D. McDonough is going to be there with him. Uh, not Ripley, but we will find out. Now, I wanted to expand on this part because Rhea gave Dom an ultimatum in the opening segment that we didn't really address. Flipping the title back on Tuesday would be frustrating unless there's a storyline reason with tricks, such as he and Carmelo Hayes both getting called up and Shawn Michaels wanting to give him a moment before they leave. I certainly don't see Ripley excommunicating Dom from Judgment Day. So I was a little bit confused because it almost seems like a no situation. Flipping the title back, not good. Dominic not winning the title, not good because she's given him an ultimatum. So I guess we'll find out on Tuesday, but I found that to be a little strange. Yes, you're right. It does seem like a uh, make or break moment here, and I don't think anybody wants to see Dominic not in the judgment day. So I don't know. I'm yeah. curious. Or they just forget about it and then don't follow through with it, but. I don't know. Triple H is pretty good at uh, continuity, so we'll find out. Uh, Priest was upset backstage about the title match being booked. McDonough tried to calm him down, so Damien again snapped at him and screamed. But Ripley and McDonough actually teamed up, suggesting the title match would be a wedge that divides Jay and Cody from Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. Priest seemed to accept that logic. Jay backstage was excited for the title match, saying he's good with Cody because he's got his back. And then Cody came out for an interview late in the show saying he didn't plan on teaming with Jay and going after the tag team titles, but he's happy to do it. And they'll be at SmackDown on Friday to confront Judgment Day. WWE also posted on social media an interview with Sammy and KO, who apparently were at the show, but their segment didn't make it on TV. And Owen's response was, I don't care. <laughs> so like they made this whole big question, like, hey, this is going to divide them. And KO was like, I don't care. I just want to win the title. So 
if Jay and Cody win them, then we'll just beat them. And I know that they get more flexibility with the social media promos, but it didn't really follow through on what Judgment Day was talking about. But this was funny, uh, the way they handled this on TV, because I had written a note after the opening segment. I wonder how KO and Sammy are going to feel about Jay and Cody getting a tag team title match. Yet they addressed that on Raw, at least the Judgment Day perspective on it, before the show ended. So I love that they did that. The Jay and Cody segments, they felt like a whole lot of nothing. I'd have much preferred them like commiserating backstage and game planning, doing something more meaningful. I know that they have time to do that on SmackDown and Raw was good on its own without it. Don't get me wrong. It just kind of felt like much do about nothing with both of them on Monday night. And that speaks to your point. Why are they not using Cody and Jay more when they're going up against Monday Night Football? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens on SmackDown, but very little Cody, the 90-second promo that was like back to the crowd, but like the camera angle was weird. So like half of the camera view was the Titan Tron was a little strange. Um, so I don't know, just kind of repeating what I said before, but Cody Roach is kind of hanging around and they didn't build to this. They didn't build to Cody and Jay being a team. They just had to allude to how do Kevin and Sami Zayn feel mm-hmm. who weren't there. So all right, and we've got the match this Saturday. So it felt thrown together at the end. Yeah, like you bo- you had Cody and Jay there as long as they're cleared, assuming they're cleared. Why would you not have them team up against another team on the show and get a tag team win and kind of establish? Right. I know they're top baby See, faces and ba- top baby faces can always fight a team and win and it doesn't really matter. But have them team up against like, I, I don't even know. I can't think of one right now, but just any of the tag teams on the show get a win. And Imperium, I know they had Imperium win and they needed to do dude, that. No, dude, I'm just saying, you get my point. Do J, do JD, JD McDonough and Dominic. There, there you go. JD McDonough and Dominic. Perfect. And it seemed like they were actually doing that in the opening segment, right? Because you had, J, you had Dom yep. stand in front of Priest. Hey, you're not cleared. I'll take this for you. And you had JD in the ring. So why would they not have beaten those two guys? It, it That should have been on the show. That's a great point. That's exactly what they should have done. All right. Anyway, let's move out of the main event. We have a lot left to talk about in WWE, and we still have your WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview to come. But this next segment, you know it. You love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right. We had an intercontinental championship contract signing. This opened hour two. Gunther came out in a tuxedo with a grin on his face. Tommaso Ciampa signed immediately saying Gunther had one opportunity after another handed to him on the main roster while he's had to grind for all of his chances. Champa said that he's bringing his family next week, but the fight will be all about him fulfilling a dream and getting what he deserves. High level mic work here. Gunther criticized him for wearing a cutoff shirt and cargos uh, to a contract signing saying the Intercontinental title is what means the most to him in the entire world. He actually got a mix of cheers and boos for that, which tells you the guy's elevating the title and fans appreciate the fact that he's elevating the title. Gunther still didn't sign the contract, so Champa suggested, hey, let's just change this contract. Let's make the date tonight. Gunther signed, and it was on. They immediately brawled. Gunther threw the table out of the ring. Champa threw a desk chair at him and then locked in the Sicilian stretch before the segment ended. This was hot as a contract signing for next week. It got even hotter in the finish with it being booked 
immediately. A crowd is always going to pop huge when they learn a match being teased on the show is actually going to go down in front of them. I couldn't help but wish they saved it for Fastlane. I don't get why Gunther cannot defend his title on a premium live event, but there's no doubt this was good. I cannot help but pop when a desk chair gets yeeted at someone's face and Champa's promo really got the crowd behind him. This is what I have been waiting for from Tommaso Champa. He delivered. Again, it was good. Okay, first thing I got to say, Gunther's fit was horrible. Because the tie, entire, you mean? You said tuxedo. It was, you said tuxedo, but it was a suit. I thought it was it a was tuxedo. A no? Mess. No, it was just, it was, it was, it looked like a suit to me, but it's like everything was okay. like his, the, co- the collar on the shirt was way too high. The pocket square is off. The skinny tie doesn't work. The, 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 the socks, the not having socks on and the pants. Well, that's your short. Like that's, it's like a, that's like a skinny guy type of look. And Guthrie's a big dude. Like it just, it looked weird on him. I think the way he had his hair typically done as well, just didn't fit with the suit. I just, I thought this look was a, a mess, frankly, hmm. uh, on a lot of different, in a lot of different types of ways, but that's not relevant to everything else that happened. I just wanted to say it. Um, I did like Champa's promo when they said we're going to do the match tonight. I was like, oh, okay. And I just thought, oh, we'll get a short match, some DQ, and then we'll do it again next week or something like that. Like I didn't expect it because how often they say, let's do it right now tonight and the crowd cheers and then they just don't or it's not exactly what you thought it was. So like I was like, all right, cool, like fun little brawl at the end or whatever. But I didn't expect it at that point to actually be the thing. So I'm looking at Gunther right now. I'm actually I pulled up WWE's photo gallery from this. There's a chance that it may not be a tuxedo and it might just be a black suit. I I accept that. I agree that the pocket square is totally messed up. It does not look good at all. Yeah. Uh, the collar, it's a high collared shirt. He has a long neck. I don't think that's a problem. It is not a skinny tie. It's a regular tie. I think the issue with the tie is it's a black tie with a black suit, except it's a very... Um, dull tie. It's not shiny, whereas the rest of the suit was yeah. sharp, so it looked odd in comparison to that. And then finally, since we're doing um, fashion here on Getting Over, I don't, is there a fashion? I was going to say, uh, I was going to name like a fashion show on TV, but I realized I can't even think of one because I don't watch them, so I have no idea. Uh, I'm also looking the at fashion files. So fa- they can come back. Fashion we files. Need, we need them back to judge it. We do. Uh, but looking at the uh, shoes and the pant length, since you mentioned that as well. No issue with the shoes, flats, totally fine. The pant length, way too short. And that's even short for a European. It You're supposed to barely show the skin if you're going to have that look. You could totally see his entire ankles this whole time. So I'm with you. What did I say? I'm with you on the tie. I'm with you on the pocket square. I'm with you on the uh, short length of the pants. But I think he still looked very, very sharp. I disagree with the overall take on Gunther's fashion and folks. There you go. That is uh, Fashion Files getting over edition right here on Gunther, the Intercontinental Champion. Let's move to the title match that actually happened on the show and get back to the professional wrestling. Gunther against Champa, main event of Raw. It started, I think, at 10.35 p.m., which I, saw, I looked over. I saw that. I was like, yes, thank you. You know, one of those moments where you're like, they're not rushing it. They are going all the way with these guys. And when I say thank you like that. What I really mean is thank you like this. Thank you. Uh, There was a period during this match where fans totally at random held up 
fireflies for an extended period. It was a little bit distracting on TV, I will admit, but the intentions were obviously positive and it was such a sweet moment for that to be random. It really hit me while I was watching this match. Anyway, plenty of strong style early. Champa got Gunther in the Sicilian stretch for a rope break. He got the life chopped out of him only to avoid one outside and Gunther's hand drilled the announce table. That became an injury. Uh, Champa worked that hand into the table. He hit Willow's bell. He couldn't lift him for a fairy tale ending. So he just kicked the shit out of the wrist only to eat a shotgun drop kick as a counter. Gunther failed on a powerbomb uh, because his arm gave out. Champa came back with an inverted DDT and a running knee for a false finish. Gunther countered fairytale ending with a chop that hurt his hand and hit a high angle dragon suplex right to the dome. Champa countered back into a Sicilian stretch with Gunther screaming until a long delayed rope break. Uh, more chops went both ways with Gunther countering Champa into a side body powerbomb, deadlifting him for a second powerbomb and locking the sleeper hold in until Champa passed out on his feet, crumpling to the canvas as the referee called the match with Gunther retaining the Intercontinental Championship in 23 minutes. Imperium beat on Champa after the bell as Gunther completely left, walked backstage, only for Johnny Gargano to presumably storm past him in gorilla position, get into the ring, clean house. Unfortunately, it was only a middling reaction at first. It did grow. And then USA Network went off the air. <laughs> right as DIY Reformed was about to hit meeting in the middle, which is their finisher, because heaven forbid they give, they being USA Network, their highest rated program an overrun of 30 seconds rather than show a Chucky commercial and the start of a serial drama rerun. Heaven forbid. But I digress. What an effing match. What a last three days of professional wrestling. It's a shame that this wasn't on Fastlane, given the time that it got. And, you know, it would have really benefited from having no commercials, obviously. But they made the most of their time and put on an absolute banger. Champa got to show exactly what he can do. He got over to a significant degree during the match. Now, a returning Gargano gets to share that rub as DIY reforms for an Imperium feud which will make them look great before presumably going after the tag team titles. This match was an absolute blast. The finish rocked with Gunther only hitting the power bombs because he had leverage as opposed to when he was unable to do it on his own earlier in the match. You almost never see a knockout finish like this either. Usually it's on the canvas, there's an arm drop or their eyes close and they pass out and that's it. Here, he was dead. He just crumpled down. It was such a great visual. So damn cool. The commercials knock it down a peg, but this was great. 4.25 stars in an A and one of the most obvious goods I've probably ever given on this podcast. Completely agree. Obvious good. This match got Champa over more than anything he did in the previous weeks leading up to it. Uh, that's ultimately how you get people into him like that. Gunther continues to elevate everybody he's in the ring with, even in victory. And uh, that that all was great. And we finally got your DIY reunion. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be a getting over pockets if we didn't talk about it. But this time it actually happened. So we can finally put that to rest. Happy to see Johnny Gargano. Happy to see them together. But man, they 
blew this end totally in more ways than one. Yep. Completely blew it. It it felt like an AEW mess up of a big moment. Yep. Like for one, the new ish theme of his mm-hmm. does not connect at all. It, especially the beginning. The beginning is is the most important thing, and it doesn't have that. So Pete, there wasn't a reaction to it at the beginning. He comes in. Cole doesn't have some great call ready. Like it didn't, he didn't present it as a big moment rare for him to miss on stuff like that. And then you have the cutaway by USA network. And it's just like, God, they really blew that. And and you posted the, the full clip. On hey, the you know what? Let, account. let me play it. It's 30 seconds. We got 30 seconds of time. You won't see the visual, but yeah. you can hear the audio. Okay. This is what did not happen on USA network. And for everyone who watched it live, Contrast what you saw and the relative like muted response of of the fans initially when he ran into the ring with what you're about to hear over the next 30 seconds, okay? That's them hugging at the end. So, you know, I don't expect Johnny Gargano to come in and get a reaction like he's edge. He's not, you know what I mean? And he did have, there was a period of time on the main roster, like right around elimination chamber where he was starting to get over. They took him off TV. He was injured, so on and so forth. So I don't expect his return to get a huge pop. But for the fans that do know and love Johnny Gargano, what they want to hear and see is Rebel Heart. And if Rebel Heart plays and this guy runs down, you're going to maximize the reaction that you're going to get. And you can see the total difference between when he came out and I don't want to say they were muted, but it was a very light response because people didn't really know what was going on. They saw him come in, he hit two moves, they responded to the moves, and then they set up this huge moment for them to hit their tag team finisher. Champa was down in one corner. Johnny raised him. He was you know, using his arm and, and getting him up in the other. They came together, literally meeting in the middle. You got DIY chants. It was pretty damn loud. People on their feet cheering. So this was the point of doing it this way. And again, USA Network just cut it off. Now, I know there are broadcast windows and there are schedules and plans and so on and so forth, but you cannot explain to me why NXT gets an overrun pretty much every week of multiple minutes, like sometimes seven, eight minutes, and they don't have enough flexibility to say, hey, you know what? If our flagship show goes 30 seconds longer, we can stay with it. We don't have to cut off right away. It's 2023. This is not 1995 where you're doing things on VHS tape and you have to run the reel. So, immensely frustrating. And then to your point about the song, yes, it's absolute. The remix is horrendous. It just is. It's not only is it not Rebel Heart, but it is also bad. I know WWE doesn't like the licensing fees on songs unless they are megastars. They have to get that back or they have to do a new remix because this one straight up sucks. And I point that out because this reaction that we got here would have been the entire segment And instead, it wasn't. It was an unforced error on WWE's part. And yes, USA Network is to blame as well. But they took what could have been, let's call it a 7 out of 10 return 
And it came across like it was a five out of 10 return. And that's massively unfortunate. One more quick thing. If I told you even four years ago that an episode of Monday Night Raw would end with Gunther versus Tommaso Ciampa main eventing, Johnny Gargano returning, and DIY reforming with Imperium in the ring, you would have thought that I lost my mind or that Vince McMahon was in a casket. This seemed like an impossibility four years ago. So the fact that it happened popped me. I loved it. These are all people I really like as professional wrestlers. And this was really cool to see. Also that it's uh, the main event of a go-home Raw and none of them are on right. pay-per-view. Yeah. That was, that was another weird part of all of it. But uh, no, good stuff. They just really, really botched the ending in a way that WWE usually does not do. Well, again, half their fault, half USA Network's fault. Not all WWE's fault. Well, I mean, no, WWE rarely messes up a time like that at this level on a Raw. I Like, that's... When's the last time we saw that happen? Long time ago, like years. It was surprised. Yeah, years ago. Uh, Drew McIntyre backstage told Pierce that he didn't want to return to Miz TV as scheduled, but he promised he would hit the ring and speak his mind anyway for the planned segment. Pierce asked him if he's okay because he seems off. Drew reiterated that no one felt pity for him when the bloodline beat him down. So why should he be expected to save Jay or any other baby faces? These are facts. He's right. These are facts right here. (laughs) Uh, McIntyre opened hour three, mocking Cody's what do you want to talk about, repeating he doesn't need to explain himself further, except to the fans. Drew said that he's done being a savior because it's hurting his career. McIntyre called the other babyfaces hypocrites for not stepping up. He said the one exception to that is Rhodes, who's only stepping up to clean up his own mess. He said forgiving Jay is a weakness, not a strength. Miz interrupted. Drew told him to shut up. He went back to his promo. Miz cut in again, told McIntyre basically embrace being a heel. Drew said, that's not his bag. He isn't about screwing people over. He's about earning it. Miz shot back that McIntyre isn't Batman, as he said last week. He's actually Two-Face. And he, Miz, is the bigger man, so he's walking away from the fight. Then he attacked Drew from behind. So we got McIntyre and Miz. This was a classic Miz in a suit match, which we get like once every four months. (laughs) McIntyre was going to Claymore him, but instead grabbed the sword. Then he gave it to the referee. He pulled off a turnbuckle cover that Miz was working earlier in the match. He drove Miz into the exposed turnbuckle and then hit Future Shock DDT for the win. After the bell, McIntyre went tongue-in-cheek, apologizing for the turnbuckle move, sarcastically suggesting now that he's apologized, he's automatically forgiven, obviously alluding to to Jay. This, Chris, was was very much my shit from the start to the finish. First, McIntyre, completely logical backstage. Then, completely logical tweener promo. Then the way he played off Miz, then all the snide comments about Cody, and then the finish in the post-match promo, which was kind of brilliant when you think about it. I wish the solo promo got a better reaction in the arena. I was a little disappointed in the fans. They were great all show, but they didn't respond to that that well. But everything else hit. And McIntyre eschewing the fan service one, two, three, Claymore for the way more brutal Future Shock DDT. That's a great hint that this is either going to be a heel turn or a tweener where he's much more on the heel side, especially given he's making all these comments and reactions to Cody. This was damn good stuff. It was the third straight week that this hit and the second straight week that it wasn't just good. It was great. It was the third straight week. I think it was my favorite thing uh, on raw like you're he very much is completely playing 
the tweener in the sense that he's a baby face who's upset at another baby face and he 100% has the right to be. When he walks out to start the segment, he like kind of puts his arm out and kind of high fives, not high fives, but just kind of like touches hands with fans in the yeah. crowd. Like he's still mm-hmm. doing baby face things, but he's also getting pissed off, but he's still kind of being more of a heel ish in the ring. And I, I don't know if Drew lost his place in his promo or whatever. It was, a, he missed a little bit. I he think did. that might've been part of the reaction. Yeah. But Miz comes out and delivers just absolute peak Miz performance again, completely elevates everything going on. And Miz had this like canned line that just came out of nowhere and like, <laughs> literally spit up laughing when, when Drew's another one of his like Miz shut up lines. Miz goes, I don't shut up. I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up there. Here, hold on. I was like, what? Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I don't shut up. I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up. <laughs> Man, you're a bloody idiot. <laughs> I had that cued. I had that cued. So I love, I love that you brought that up because I had it ready to go. Yeah. I was like, I just like out of nowhere, just really, really funny. And it, it allows people to like still like McIntyre, but him still like be upset about things. Right. The right. only thing that was missing from this that I'm really surprised that they didn't do. It, it was talk about how Miz took the WWE title from Drew McIntyre. Mm hmm with the help of Bobby Lashley when he cashed in at Money in the Bank. That's the only thing I can't believe they didn't allude to. Like, Drew should be as pissed off about that as he is about Jey Uso and the bloodline and all that, all that stuff. Very surprised they haven't talked about that. But other than that, everything else was terrific. Drew McIntyre is super interesting and super cool right now. Love what they're doing. I would actually argue he shouldn't be pissed about that. He should be using it as an example of like Miz taking the opportunity that was presented to him and looking out for himself of what he is going to be doing. He should be pissed at Bobby Lashley for that. But Miz was just an opportunist in that situation. And what McIntyre is saying is, hey, man, you know, I didn't expect you to save me when Bobby Lashley beat me down. You took advantage of me. So why do I need to be a baby face and and save a baby face? Right. So like that's just a perfect example but you're right. It should have been mentioned somehow. They're in the ring together. That's part of Drew getting screwed over over this two year period that we is that we that we've been talking about. That's the basis for this character change, which is very smart, by the way, as a basis for the character change. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely should have been mentioned. You are right about that. Speaking of Bobby Lashley, he guested on the Grayson Waller effect. Lashley said he made a mistake recruiting the Street Profits, who clearly don't have enough pride to make it. So Waller pitched himself and Austin Theory as a team, and Lashley obviously declined because he hates Theory. The Prophets confronted, but Lashley cut them off, saying if they wanted something out of him to prove they deserved it. Waller needed to pick up the energy, so he introduced Theory. He stared off with Lashley during the entrance. And Chris, look, this was another week of this storyline where we got an entire segment without any actual development. Lashley said the exact same thing to them last week. This could have easily been a backstage segment with them walking up to Lashley and him denying them. That's all it needed to be. The forced Grayson Waller effect segments every single week, they are wearing on me. I'm not saying they're never good. There are occasions in which they're valuable. It does not need to be on SmackDown every single week, especially when you can accomplish something backstage anyway. 
The theory callbacks were actually the best part of the entire thing, but they had nothing to do with the story. So like I said last week, I'm a huge fan, not just of Lashley, but the Prophets as well. I'm also a fan of them as a trio. It just seems like Triple H is taking what should have been like a month-long character development and instead stretching it for two months. So I had to give this segment a very light bad. I think I gave this a bad last week and I'm giving it a bad again. What is going on? Like, I just don't understand the point of any of this. We have yet to really have a good explanation of what is going on and why. And now they're breaking up and it's just, I just, it's so weird. The only other thing I wanted to say here was that in the crawl underneath the Grace yeah. Waller effect. Yeah. And you're there say. was a comment. Yeah. There was, there was a comment from Carl Havoc three that says, I love the Dan Flash's shirt, Grayson. That is two references to the funny uh, sketch comedy show. I think you should leave on Netflix. Apparently there was another similar one a couple of weeks back too. So whoever writes these things is an I think you should leave fan. And I just want to say, we acknowledge you. I'm going to say this. And you have you seen the meme where like it's the guy, I, I forget what cartoon it's from, but he's like standing in the middle and there's like a million knives pointed at his neck. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to make this statement here. Uh, I think you should leave. It has its moments. I think it's wholly overrated. Ah, I'm going to, I'm putting a knife to your throat now. Here's the thing. You are biased because you're Detroit. He's Detroit. And I think, I think there's something there for you. But that said, it's very popular. And again, there are definite moments. The Dan Flashes is actually one of the moments that I like the most. Uh, but there are, when you watch it, or at least when I sit down and watch it, and I still watch every episode of it when it goes on Netflix, and I watch it in its entirety, it's definitely a roller coaster for me. It's like, wow, that was one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. And then, yeah, that wasn't really that funny. People talk about it, though, like it can't miss. And I don't believe that it can't miss. I think it misses frequently. It's like, it's like, the, most, it's like the most memeable show in history. Like that's half the point of the show is like to create the memes. <laughs> did you ever, and, 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 and that's one of them. Did you ever watch the show Detroiters on Comedy Central? Great show. Got yeah. to two seasons, I think. I wish it got more. Very I like that. Very better. accurate show too. I like that better than this, just by comparison. Yeah, I think they're 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 different, but they're both great. If yeah. you have not seen Detroiters, it's on Comedy Central, Paramount Plus, or something. Uh, very accurate to living in Detroit, suburban Detroit as well. That's cool. All right. Uh, Theory ended up fighting Cameron Grimes after this segment. Dragon Lee was in the audience to promote NXT and build off his Raw appearance last week. Grimes, unfortunately, got the job or entrance, but he also got all of the offense, including a cool flip over German suplex. Waller distracted, allowing Theory to throw Grimes headfirst into the post outside. He followed with the rolling dropkick and A-Town down for the win in two minutes. Theory stared down Dragon after the bell. I have no idea how to grade this. It sucked that Grimes got squashed, but it was completely excused given the finish. They also sold their asses off for each other. That was cool. This was Grimes' first TV match in two months. The last one, a three-minute squash to Theory. In fact, Cameron Grimes has only had four TV matches since getting called up five months ago. The times of those matches, seven seconds, two minutes and 11 seconds, three minutes and two seconds, and then like about two minutes here. He has a two and two record. I get using someone who is not on TV for fodder for a bigger star, but why would you not let them go and try to get this guy over before he loses? 
It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's no reason they can't make six to seven minutes on TV for a match. And that is still too short for my taste, but it's way better than two. At this point in SmackDown, there were 45 minutes into the show with five total minutes of wrestling over two matches. I guess that's my grade. Bad. Yeah, uh, bad just because there was kind of nothing to it. So I don't really have any other thoughts. Very right, short yeah, that's segment. fine. Didn't do much of anything. By the way, they are giving Dragon Lee a match against Theory next week on SmackDown, or this Friday, I should say, on SmackDown. So that's exciting. Uh, the United States Championship was on the line. Rey Mysterio against Santos Escobar. Backstage before the match, Escobar said he had butterflies, but was excited to make his dream come true. Mysterio said LWO is family. He grew up watching Escobar's dad, and he would give him the fight of his life. Pure baby face stuff from both guys. Zelina Vega supported them at ringside, and both of them wore LWO gear. Escobar moonsaulted Rey off the barricade and hit a Huracarana off the ropes, plus a gory special. Santos blocked an avalanche Huracarana with Mysterio blocking an avalanche phantom driver and hitting a Huracarana off the post inside. But Santos caught his legs on a 619. Rey reversed him back into 619 position, nailed it, but Escobar sat up to avoid the frog splash. There were false finishes both ways, and Mysterio finally countered the phantom driver into a small package style pinning combination to retain the title in 21 minutes. So let's just, before I get into anything else, let's make note that both mid-card titles got defended on the respective shows, SmackDown and Raw, and both of them got 21 plus minutes in the ring. Thank you! Now, before they could make good after the bell, the Prophets attacked the LWO from behind, hitting a grand total of one clothesline. Then Lashley came out clapping. The rest of the LWO came in for the save. They quickly got eliminated with the Prophets' new finisher, Cash Out. And they finally, the Prophets did, got booed. Security also held back Dragon Lee from helping from the crowd. So I want to split this up into two segments. First, the match. I'm quite sure there's a storyline reason why Mysterio beat Escobar. But if there was ever a moment to make Santos, it truly felt like it was here. And I'm not sure that much would have changed in storytelling going forward because they're still stablemates and they were both baby faces. No one turned on each other in the match. So Santos could have won. They both could have been faces and Ray could have supported him. It truly felt like that should have been the booking here. Still, if even in a loss, I'm glad he got the title match he deserved and I'm glad they got more than 20 minutes. Two commercial breaks ruined the flow. But look, here's my issue. When you remember that Ray has lost to LA Knight, Solo Sokoa, Finn Balor, Austin Theory, and Karrion Cross in 2023, why could he not lose to the one guy who actually needs the rub and the title? You know what I mean? This gets a provisional good for me because the booking seems intentional. And while the match was fun, Escobar was actually slow and clunky in a couple parts, which is very unlike him. 3.75 stars, B+. Again, I'm just talking about the match. Yes, good good match. Enjoyed it. That was all great. Um, I just, like you said, remain confused at the entire booking of this. This whole thing started when we were going to have the open challenge. It was four people to the U.S. title. L.A. Knight's in it. And it, it just, in, in Santos Escobar, Ray gets hurt. Escobar gets kayfabe hurt. I just, bizarre. And then we finally get here. You think this whole point was to get Santos Escobar over and elevated into a new level. Then we get here and then it just, doesn't happen right so i don't know i mean i enjoyed the match and everything but just kind of confused about the whole thing now in terms of the post match with the prophets and lashley so 
you want me to believe Lashley dropped them like a bad habit, but they come out and deliver one clothesline and he's ready to take them back. Like Lashley should have been out at the end of the segment after the Prophets beat up Ray, Santos, Wild, and Cruz. If they did that and laid out all four LWO guys and then you had Lashley come out, I would buy that he appreciated that and thought it was them taking initiative and, and going out and just crushing a stable. Instead, they hit one clothesline and Lashley's out there on a dime, ready to take them back. And by the way, less than an hour after writing them off, saying he wanted nothing to do with them. I maintain it's a bad. I said it earlier. I said it last week. Maybe they're back on track and things that happen from here on are going to be good. And we'll talk a little bit more later about a booking that's coming for Fastlane that might help with that. But in this moment on SmackDown Friday, for me, it was another bad. Yeah, just I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand it. I'm just so confused. And everything about the profits in Bobby Lashley right now is a bad. All right. Alpha Academy fought Imperium. Otis had a fun hot tag where he ruined the heels with Lariats and caught Giovanni Vinci midair for a world's strongest slam. Vinci prevented an avalanche fallaway slam by grabbing Otis's foot. So Kaiser landed on him and then hit a kick to the jaw for the win. Vinci looked for credit after the bell because he really was the one who won the match. But Kaiser was focused on Chad Gable. Later backstage, Gable supported Otis, saying Gunther had already peaked. And once he peaks, everyone will pay. A really fun tag match. The right team won. We got the right finish because Imperium needs elevation and Vinci needs to atone for some of his sins recently. Gable was protected by not taking the fall. That factored into it. The Gunther mentions, they're so frequent by Gable. It feels like this is just going to go down in November. I thought they might delay it a little further out to Royal Rumble or maybe December, one of those Christmas shows. Um, but it looks like it's going to happen pretty soon. Regardless, this segment on its own, good. Yep, good stuff. Imperium gets a win that they needed. Good match. Both of these teams can trade wins and losses, and it's not really going to impact their standing. So uh, uh, good stuff. I liked it. Uh, Xavier Woods fought Ivar. Woods dodged the running crossbody at ringside with Ivar throwing himself into the apron screen before eating a dropkick off the barricade. Xavier somehow got Ivar up for basically like an attitude adjustment. Huge, massive pop for that. Woods tried to powerbomb Ivar off the ropes, but basically ate a bonsai drop. Then he dodged the splash and won with Backwoods in eight minutes. Ivar attacked and Kofi Kingston saved from commentary, but Ivar dominated both of them, stacking them and then hitting his big moonsault to end it. Woods looked great here, yet Ivar was able to maintain his dominance. Even with Eric still injured, he was by himself. Valhalla wasn't even there with him. The feud is getting a little bit long in the tooth, but I gotta say, I still thought it was good on Monday night. I loved what we got both from the match and the post-match. I enjoyed this because it felt a little bit different, especially the the post-match and the, the moonsault onto the two of them. Like Ivar looked great coming <laughs> he did. Out the, at the end. And it's kind of been a while since I felt like that among the Viking Raiders. So um, that was a good. Uh, Tegan Knox backstage was informed her NXT championship match was postponed because of Becky Lynch's arm getting lacerated deep at NXT No Mercy, and that's true. It cut through Ugh. all the way down to her fat, actually. It was nasty how deep it was. Uh, Chelsea Green came in, ironically, criticizing Knox for complaining. She hadn't complained, saying that Tegan was not championship material, so Knox suggested she fight Green, which Pierce obviously loved. Lynch showed up later, promising Knox a fight when she gets cleared. Natalia got in Becky's face, then told Tegan they got off on the wrong foot, and she's proud of her. 
So we got Tegan Ox against Chelsea Green. Piper Niven kept getting involved, so Natty came out to get in her face. That allowed Tegan to throw Chelsea off the top rope, hit her somersault sent on, and then the shiniest wizard for the win in two minutes. I liked the backstage segment. Hated everything else. Raw is a three-hour show, and we got two minutes of pretty clunky because they rushed women's wrestling, despite Green, by the way, being one half of the champions and Knox being someone they're trying to build into a legitimate challenger for Lynch. Why the fuck would you not give them six to seven minutes so that Tegan can actually get over and Chelsea can look somewhat legitimate as one half of the women's tag team champions? Why would you run the men's match that we're going to talk about next for no reason whatsoever when all of the time spent on that could have been used on this? Knox hit one move, got a mini pop, and the match ended. I'm sorry, this was ugly. Block at zero! Yeah, look, obviously they had to change on the fly because of the Becky injury, um, and this was presumably supposed to be a big elevating moment for Tegan Knox. So like in that sense, I'm like, I, I get you kind of had to throw something together last minute, um, but the larger point of this was the only women's wrestling on the show is a problem. And there have been times like there's a great backstage segment involving Chelsea Green and Piper or something, and then the match is short. And I'm okay with that because it's furthering a certain story. Mm -hmm. That was not the case here. I'm not going to give it an ugly just because of the circumstances, but it is definitely a bad. And just to note, WWE did open Raw with that big women's brawl, which was cool. But again, that was only like, what, four minutes? So the women got seven minutes of TV time plus the backstage segments. Let's get let's say it's 10. But it's a three hour freaking show. I mean, you got to do better. I will say part of the booking here is pretty interesting because by Natty having Knox's back against a tag team, once Tegan loses to Becky, it kind of seems like they may step up as women's tag team title challengers. But again, if they get a four minute match, that doesn't matter at all. So I'm just immensely frustrated. Uh, Triple H has done, in some respects, a really good job with women's booking recently. Becky Lynch, primarily with uh, Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark and what they were doing there, what they're doing with the other women, the larger women on the show. That is certainly praiseworthy. Uh, SmackDown, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but anything else that is not top level, it just feels completely throwaway. It's really frustrating. I'll also note Becky had a fun backstage segment with Indy Hartwell. I think it was on TV, but I may have missed it. We tweeted it, though, if you want to watch it. So just go at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Uh, Cedric Alexander fought Bronson Reed. This is the men's match I was referring to. Cedric got all of the offense until Bronson caught him with the crossbody, running sent on, and Tsunami for the win in three minutes. This was almost a carbon copy of the Theory Grimes match from SmackDown. And it was a similarly unfortunate squash for a guy in Alexander who has plenty of talent, but is not even getting a chance to show it, even in losses. The fans started popping for him. They were excited after 45 seconds, but it was all ruined because the match ended a minute and 15 seconds later. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, like I said earlier, when they can't get time to move because they're not getting time in the match. So how is he supposed to get over? He doesn't have a chance. Unlike Theory, Reed didn't even need to win this. He's been built so consistently strong. So this had no business being on Raw at all. This was bad. Yeah, it's a bad just because there's no point to it, no nothing. It, like it's rare, honestly, in the Triple H era that we get segments that just mean nothing. And we got a couple of them here. 
Yeah, at least the theory one had a point. It built to the Dragon Lee match. It came out of the Bobby Lashley segment. There was a point to it. This, there was no point whatsoever. Wasn't a challenge backstage. Nothing set it up. It was totally worthless. And again, time that could have gone to the women that was completely wasted here. Uh, Also last here on this segment, uh, we got part two of the Elton Prince rehab montage with him trying to swing a chair, make a tag, eye poke, and do other heel antics from a wheelchair, which again, he doesn't need the wheelchair. Brawling Brutes watched backstage commenting (laughs) about him being an idiot. I thought it was damn funny. Easy, good. I actually thought it was better than last week. Hilarious. I love this last week. I loved it here. I I love the buildup to him standing up to get out of the wheelchair, even though he's dealing with a shoulder injury. I just, this whole thing, fully leaning into the campiness of it all, like just, it's very funny every week. I said last week, I hope they do this for a couple of weeks before they come back because they're so good. They're just really funny. Uh, This was terrific stuff again. So with that, let's get into our WWE Fastlane Ultimate Preview. I believe as of the time we are taping this podcast, only five matches are announced for the show. I would not be surprised if another one gets announced Friday on SmackDown or at some point during the week before SmackDown. It's frustrating for us when we try to do an Ultimate Preview. WWE has largely been good about this in the past. We haven't had much problems, unlike with AEW, where they announced like six different matches after we already taped the Ultimate Preview. Uh, But regardless, we will break down all five, including things that happened on TV that relate to them. We'll also give you picks, predictions, and then at the end, a pre-show expectation grade for WWE Fastlane. So let's start with what is easily the lowest match on the show. LWO against Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits. We told you about what went down on SmackDown earlier. Backstage after commercial, Escobar ranted in Spanish about the attack and Mysterio challenged the heels to a six-man match at Fastlane. So that's how this got booked somewhat out of nowhere. This is a total SmackDown match. You could even say it's a SmackDown main event. It has no business, as far as I'm concerned, being on a premium live event while two major titles as of right now are left off the card. Though I will say... At least one of the mid-card champions, Rey Mysterio in this case, is technically on the show, even if he's not defending the title. I don't really think there's much analysis to give here. I think the heels absolutely need to win. Lashley on the profits, number one, to establish them as a trio. Number two, because the build for them as a trio has been so incredibly clunky. And with the LWO, you know, Wild or Cruz can easily take the fall without Escobar or Mysterio taking an L. So the profits and Lashley win. And again, yeah, I just don't really think this belongs on Fastlane. Yeah, I agree. There's really not much to say about the buildup other than what we've already said in this podcast. I'm picking Bobby Lashley and the Profits as well. If you're going to put them as a trio, they need to like win. And maybe we're starting some strife between Ray and Santos out of this. I don't know. But uh, my pick is the heels. That is possible if like Mysterio loses and he blames him for it. But it just doesn't seem like they're going with the Santos heel turn. So I guess we'll see. Uh, WWE Women's Championship, that will be on the line. Let's discuss how we got to the match as it is booked. Uh, Charlotte Flair fought Bayley on SmackDown. Flair, for once, had a totally different look than usual. Before the bell, Charlotte asked Bayley what happened to her. She used to be one of the four horsewomen, but has now become a stepping stone supporting someone else's champion. Then Flair promised to challenge EO Sky for the title after she beats Bayley. How is Charlotte and this character a babyface criticizing someone else for maturing and supporting a friend, and then herself just saying, I'm going to go after the title because I want to. You know, Charlotte sees gold and she has to follow it. She, she's like, where's the championship? Oh, it's out there. Let me go out there. Even though she has nothing to do with us. 
We don't want Charlotte around. I'm going to use this sound drop endlessly. I just wanted to prepare everyone. Uh, They both got their stuff in with Charlotte easily having her best match in this most recent return, no question. Bailey was chopping her in the chest and suddenly decided to run the ropes with Charlotte taking her off her feet with the spear for the win. Bailey grabbed the mic after saying she wouldn't just grant her a title match like Charlotte wanted and she was going to lay her out like she promised. Damage control went to attack. Asuka made the save and screamed in Japanese into the mic. Bailey apparently understood her and accepted a triple threat challenge. EO claimed that was not what Asuka said. I don't even know the last time Charlotte Flair won with a spear, particularly against an opponent of Bailey's stature, particularly with the person running into her. It was a horrendous finish that made Bailey look like absolute shit to lose like that. But again, before the finish, Charlotte was way, way smoother in the ring than she had been previously. Chris, do you have anything to say about this match and the build and everything we just talked about before we get into the post-match and the fast lane match? Yeah, I, I agree on all those points. I haven't really just kind of connected with the story as a whole. Charlotte being there and being just the Charlotte of it all just kind of hangs over everything, like you said. So um, yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. So regarding this match, I mean, look, we effing knew that this was coming with Charlotte challenging in some form or fashion. What did we want? EO Asuka too. What did we get? Charlotte Flair. It just feels like a completely obvious setup for Flair to pin Asuka and win the title without EO losing. I should say pin Asuka again and win the title without EO losing. That would be a 63-day title reign for EO with, I believe, only two defenses since the cash-in victory if it goes down that way. Either way, Asuka is going to be the one taking the fall. And it's just frustrating that this is going to come without it being a one-on-one with EO, where if EO beat Asuka, that means something. I get that Charlotte is a star, but I truly don't believe she's that much of a draw. And man, it was just kind of deflating to see it go down this way. I will say this. I hope they prove my pessimism completely wrong because WWE actually has a chance with this match to make EO by having her beat Charlotte. And I don't mean just beat Charlotte as part of beating Asuka. I mean, pinning Charlotte clean. And if they do that, I promise I will retract every shred of criticism I've provided in this storyline unless they rematch one-on-one and Flair just beats her at Crown Jewel. But if it ends here and we get like Io and Asuka again at Crown Jewel, I will fully retract my criticism and almost appreciate that they use Charlotte in this way. My problem, Chris, is I really don't think they are going to. And that's why, despite not a single bone in my body, Wanting this to be the case, my prediction is Charlotte Flair winning this title at Fastlane. The most frustrating part about all of this is that there's not really a story to talk about. All we can talk about is the meta-ness of it all. They're going to Crown Jewel. Do they want Charlotte to be the champion going into Crown Jewel? Just the 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 the, the all the talk about Charlotte. Can we get EO Asuka? Is EO a big enough star? Like none of it's about the actual story. And that's a failure on WWE's part to not have a compelling story where we're thinking about that instead of what else is going on. EO Sky has been champ for two months. She is still basically second fiddle in her trio team. Like, I don't know. Are they trying to 
are they trying to elevate you if they are they haven't really done a good job of that yet do they not feel they can because of the language barrier and stuff like that i i, I don't know but that's like the only thing we can talk about with all of this i'm gonna pick eo to win just to have a little bit of faith in what's going on but i could completely see it being charlotte as well it just you want to get past the point where we're not just talking about oh charlotte's gonna win for whatever reason and not just like oh man there's a good story i can't wait to like see what that match is you know and it's it's been frustrating and kind of hung over the SummerSlam match uh, a, a bit as well oh, how long can oscar be champion blah 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 so it's like they got to get back to telling good women's stories so mm -hmm. we don't have to talk about this other stuff my true hope is just like with the whole nia jacks angle where she's injuring people and like that's the gimmick they're playing into the online sentiment i i really do hope that that's what they're doing with Charlotte here. Don't forget, Bailey has cut multiple promos. I played the one clip, but she's done that two or three times saying, why are you involved in this title picture? It has nothing to do with you. So I hope this is all a tongue in cheek storyline playing into the fact that every time Charlotte is on screen, she's involved in the title picture or she's champion. And if it is, I could not be, I will not be happier. I hope you are right. I have, we have never done this segment before where I've more wanted to be wrong about a prediction than this one. So I hope you're right. I hope you retains, but it's one of those like fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you, fool me three times, you know, whatever. I, I, I probably got that idiom completely wrong when I just said it. But point is, I have been fooled so many times thinking that they weren't going to use Charlotte in the type of fashion that they always do and yet they always use her in the exact same way. So I'll believe it when I see it. I hope number one, EO retains, and I hope number two, we do not get EO and Flair at Crown Jewel with Flair winning so that she gets past Charlotte as a competitor and actually gets to have a title reign and fight some other women. And if Bianca Belair takes it off of her eventually, that's fine. If Bailey takes it off of her eventually, that would be even better. It should not, cannot be Charlotte Flair. Let's move on. John Cena will be fighting Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa in what was supposed to be a tag team match, but became a handicap match, or did it? Let's discuss what happened Friday night on SmackDown. The Bloodline, or at least what's still around from it, opened SmackDown with Paul Heyman saying they all acknowledged the Tribal Chief before, uh, 10 minutes later, pointing out that John Cena and AJ Styles aren't there. Jimmy Uso held out his hand for the microphone just like Roman Reigns. Paul hesitated, so Jimmy clowned and stole it from him talking some annoying shit before Carl Anderson attacked him from behind. Solo Sokoa went to attack. Heyman held him back, and Solo told Jimmy to handle it. Jimmy went to get dapped up by his brother, but Solo totally left him hanging, and Jimmy did the thing where like you realize your hand is just left out there, so you like dap yourself up. If the pathetic hanger-on angle with Jimmy was not crystal clear after this, I'm not really sure how else I can explain it to you guys. Also, this was the whitest that Heyman's hair has been this entire bloodline run. He stopped dying it weeks ago, presumably to sell the stress that Jimmy is causing without Reigns there. And also, Jimmy was wearing a plain black tank top without any of the normal bloodline style graphics that you would expect to see. So I thought all of that was interesting. Jimmy beat Anderson handily in the match, winning with an Uso splash. He did get some help with a solo distraction and an eye rake at one point. Anderson attacked after the bell, so Sokoa hit the Samoan spike. Commentary reminded that Jimmy is not officially in the bloodline until Roman says so. And then Solo again denied Jimmy a dap after the bell. Mi Chin then ran in. Jimmy talked shit to her. So she slapped the shit out of him across the face. Like, what did the five fingers say to the face? That type of slap. Uh, knocked him on his ass. He was stunned. Jimmy got pissed about being embarrassed backstage. 
So he later beat the shit out of Ashanti the Adonis. When Jason Jordan pulled him off, Solo grabbed Ashanti for a Uranagi through a table. The Meechan slap, Chris, was easily the best part of this entire thing, particularly how Jimmy's inability to do anything about it sent him into a range. This was probably the most impactful yeah. thing that Mia Yim has done ever on the entire main roster. Uh, it's sad and unfortunate to say that, but it's true. Not that I was overly hyped for this match. It was a missed opportunity to legitimize Jimmy as a singles wrestler against someone who could have given him a damn good match if they had time, especially given how little wrestling was on hour one of SmackDown. So that is my entire take on this big bloodline segment, at least the first part that we got on Friday night. Yeah, it was interesting. It, it, like you said, it makes clear that Jimmy is just kind of like the hanger on of this. And even like Solo not putting his finger up when Jimmy put his finger up. Um, but the highlight was Jimmy's reaction to getting slapped. Like like just not only just that he couldn't do anything, but like he seemed kind of taken aback at how hard it was. He's <laughs> just like, yeah. damn. So I thought that was, uh, that was pretty funny. My favorite part of SmackDown, and obviously there was little that I actually liked that much this week, was Cena arrives to the building with 30 minutes left. Cameras cut to the parking lot where he screeches in in a Mustang, burning rubber because, you know, fast lane. It was also a callback to his WrestleMania entrance. He didn't even turn off the engine. They literally ran a 90-minute <laughs> angle on SmackDown about this guy being late to the show just to do a gimmick entrance playing off the PLE name. Cena has done a lot of corny shit, but he was never near this corny for me, at least. This was near the top. It was such a hard eye roll that it actually made me laugh. It was weird because, like, they opened the show and, like, John Cena's here tonight. And then then the promo says, John Cena's not here tonight. I was like, what? And then, like, oh, is he good? Is, is, I don't even understand that, like, he needed to hurry in for what reason exactly. And <laughs> right. then he gets there. And it's not like he comes out of the car and goes right to the ring. It's just, like, the whole thing was just weird. I didn't make the fast lane connection until you just said it. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Cena came out for the main event segment, and during his entrance, he said, yeah, into the camera. In the ring, he said he would honor the contract even if he had to fight a handicap match, which obviously got big babyface cheers. Bloodline came out to fight, so Cena bumped Jimmy off the apron and challenged Sokoa. He was ready for an AA when Jimmy hit a super kick. They basically repeated last week's attack concept to a T. Jimmy was ready to splash Cena through the announce table, so Solo stopped him because he wanted the honors. As he climbed, L.A. Knight's music finally hit to a massive pop. The man runs down in Tim's. He literally stomped a mud hole in Jimmy before doing the Rock's open hand sequence on Solo. That had to be purposeful that he did Stone Cold Steve Austin and then the Rock back to back. Kevin Patrick called a neckbreaker a BFT. Get him the hell out of that announce table, please. Cena helped clear the ring. So Knight picked up the contract, which luckily had a pen in it and signed it to be his partner. I wonder what was originally planned for this week because that was clearly exactly the plan for last week. Anyway, that's how the match was set up. And I feel the same way I did last week when we talked about it. Smart way for Knight to get the Cena rub, but ultimately an A team of stars versus a B team, literal B team, doesn't really make me that excited for Fastlane. In other words, if this was a pay-per-view and this was the main event, I would not buy it because of this match. Yet, it's the top storyline on SmackDown going into the show. That's all I really got here. I highly and fully expect Cena and Knight to win. Look, it's an LA Knight segment. He's on the card like he's with John Cena. I'm into it. I, I was going to be into it. Like the biggest takeaway from this is that they are putting LA Knight 
over like Rover. Like we no need to no longer need to talk about are they pushing him enough? Oh, he didn't get the U.S. title. When's he going to get this and that? Like, no, he's there now, dude. Like they are having him save John Cena from a beatdown and them tacking up as a tag team. I am picking the faces to win as well. And just we love to see it. Like we've barely talked much about L.A. Knight because it's just like they're doing the thing with him now. Mm-hmm. And we just really like it. He gets huge pops. It's fun. And there's nothing there's not much more to analyze other than that. But uh, huge pop there continues to to be on this rise now and he's got the full machine behind him and it's really cool to see and who do you have winning la knight and john cena let's move to the tag team championship match that i discussed earlier in this show judgment day defending against cody rhodes and jay uso so there's a couple interesting elements here that i want to clarify when i mention my prediction Number one, Jey Uso did not move to Raw to be a single star to win the tag team titles in one month. And I don't think that the first title you're going to give Cody in WWE upon his return is a tag team championship when obviously the goal is for him to win the WWE championship. Secondly, all the Drew McIntyre stuff that we discussed earlier, all the mentions of Cody Rhodes would not surprise me if he completes his turn and possibly cost them this match or in a situation where they might be getting beat down in the post-match has an opportunity to make the save, saves them, and then turns on Cody at the end. No matter what, whatever the case might be, my prediction is that Judgment Day retains the titles. The pick is Judgment Day as well. Like you said, n- neither of them are here to win tag team gold again. Um, match got thrown together on a Tuesday. Yeah, the pick is Judgment Day. On a Monday, sure. But yes, that is true. Uh, the only reason for Judgment Day to lose the titles, the only reason, is if you are having Damian Priest cash in the Money in the Bank briefcase on the same show. And if that does happen, if they lose the titles, or if this isn't the main event, obviously, this would have to be earlier in the show with the next match being the main event for this to be the case. But if they lose the titles, that's a little precursor potentially that you guys can keep an eye on to a potential Money in the Bank cash in after the main event. So just a heads up on that. Let's move to what I definitely expect to be the main event of WWE Fastlane, this despite John Cena and LA Knight teaming and Cody Rhodes and Jey Uso teaming. That is the World Heavyweight Championship, Seth Rollins defending against Shinsuke Nakamura in a last man standing match. Michael Cole did a live interview of Rollins in the ring, putting over his extensive career and all of his incarnations before suggesting Rollins is usually the puppeteer, but seems to be the puppet this time. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Rollins was in full character brushing off what Cole said, so he shot back. Rollins is basically kidding himself. He asked why he's putting himself through this stipulation. Rollins got cold cheered, pointing out he's only missed two shows in 26 years, saying that is the same dedication that he has in the ring. It's why people love singing his song and why he'll leave it all in the squared circle. Nakamura appeared on the Titantron calling Rollins a liar and suggesting the back injury may only be for sympathy. WWE and its dumbass camera cuts kept leaving the Titantron So we couldn't see what he was saying because there were subtitles. So we were missing half the promo. Suddenly, Shinsuke attacked from behind, hit Kinshasa to the back of Rollins' head as his pre-taped self simultaneously counted on the Titantron. Rollins got up at seven, so Nakamura wore him out with a dozen chair shots to the back. He sat in a chair while the Titantron Nakamura counted to nine. Rollins again stood, so Nakamura hit a sidewalk slam into an open chair and a second Kinshasa. Then he grabbed the mic, counted to 10 himself, chorus of boos, 
and he held the title in the air to end the segment. This, Chris, I thought was the single best go-home segment, or I should say one of the best go-home segments that WWE has done under Triple H's creative. And this is the best that Nakamura has been as a character in WWE, main roster or NXT. The character work is the best shit he's ever done. I kept trying to think of a note to share here. I don't have another one. A long-tenured guy like Cole cutting through Rollins shit, immensely smart. And it was great to hear Cole get his flowers in the segment also. Rollins coming back down to earth and addressing the situation normally, that was badly needed. You've been talking about that for weeks. Then you have Nakamura's vicious attack. When he stood there with that title, it just looked right. The only note was the camera cuts when we were trying to read text. They got to have better direction than that. But the creative was completely on point. And even though I was already psyched for this match, this put me all in on it being the hopeful and by far most deserving main event of Fastlane. Definitely a great go-home segment um, and a step up from kind of repeating the same things over and over in recent weeks, but it was another twist on it. I really like the Titan Tron Nakamura counting to 10 on top of Shinsuke, which is really cool timing with the way they did that. Um, I, the, the pick is Rollins to retain, especially because of how that segment went, in which case, like, I don't know if it's the main event. Theoretically, it should. It's a world title. It should be your main event. But this thing is like never main evented Raw, even this storyline. It's always just stuck into the middle of Raw. Makes me wonder if you end the show with John Cena and oh, I really hope they um, don't. Uh, and LA Knight, you know, like just because they're the big name. So we'll see. Um, I'm curious about that. But I think without a doubt, Rollins is winning. Seth Rollins in the World Heavyweight Championship not being able to main event a premium live event because of LA Knight and John Cena in a random non-title feud that was only built last Friday. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that would be a disgrace if that's the case. I will be very upset about that Saturday night if that is what happens. Now, look, uh, you gave your pick. We said it about Finn Balor, and it didn't happen. And I'm going to say it again about Shinsuke Nakamura, knowing it's not going to happen. Shinsuke should win the World Heavyweight Championship. I know. The loser goes home strong, and they look good. And then the match winner prevails on the PLE. Tale as old as time in WWE. But holy shit, after that beating, pull the effing trigger with Nakamura. Again, that's what I would do. For a prediction, Rollins retains, and it makes sense for him to retain, given there's not really a deep set of babyface challengers. You can get Drew McIntyre up. There's other heels on Raw that you can get up for it. It just doesn't necessarily make sense for them to change it for Nakamura. But again, if I had the book, Shinsuke Nakamura would be walking out with the World Heavyweight Championship. Let me ask you that question quick, Chris. If you had the book, who would win this match? I would love for Nakamura to win because I think he's done a good job in this feud. There's just not a single thing in the entire booking of it uh, that makes me think he will. But I'm saying I'm if you had of, the book, like said, who would you book like, to win? Is I'm kind I'm of I'm kind of bored. I'm kind of bored with Seth as champion at this point. I think Nakamura has done a really good job here. I would love to see him get the title. Um, so you would book him to win the title if you had the opportunity? Yes. All right. Just clarifying. I wanted to make sure the question got directly answered. That's the end of the WWE Fastlane uh, Ultimate Preview. Let's move to our pre-show expectation grades. As always, we will post a poll on Twitter at getting overcast about an hour before the show 
begins. All of you can provide your grades. We will discuss both your pre and post show grades on our WWE Fastlane Instant Analysis Podcast as soon as that program goes off the air. But here, Chris, on this podcast, when we do the pre-show grades, I always let you go first. So go ahead. What is your expectation grade for WWE Fastlane? I'm going to say B, but I could see it getting up into high B plus low A minus territory. Mm-hmm. Small, like short cards, I usually end up coming out of feeling pretty good about because it didn't take forever, three hours at most. But I don't like Seth Rollins is going to retain three of the other matches. I mean, the Judgment Day are going to retain. You've got a couple of matches here that don't really mean anything. There's just not there's nothing big unless there's a cash in unless Rollins loses the title or something. Um, So I'm going to say B. It's a very, very, very limited card. It is a limited card. I agree. It actually does have some pretty decent star power. But even in comparison to payback, which was. Last month, there were six matches on that card. If you remember, four title matches and the ones that were not were Becky Lynch, Tristratus and LA Knight, The Miz. So they kept the star. They put out a lot of star power in the non-title matches. And the other matches were also really solid. Rhea Ripley, Raquel Rodriguez, Rollins and Nakamura again. So I do think this is a much weaker card than uh, Payback was. But don't forget what happened when we previewed Payback. We on the podcast were like, It's a B show. It's a B expectation grade. They really didn't make this anything that exciting, even though we thought it might exceed expectations. And what did it do? It really freaking exceeded expectations. I think I sent a tweet at the time. I was like, we called this a B show. We're idiots, right? Um, So here going in, I feel the same way, not from a grade standpoint, but I do feel like it is a B show in terms of the card, the build and how it's been put together and some of the matches that are on it. They just don't necessarily speak to me primarily John Cena, LA Knight against Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa, and then LWO against um, Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits, which I just don't think belongs on here at all whatsoever. Um, and obviously, I'm not thrilled see, with I, see, the women's I, See, honestly, like John Cena and LA Knight, that is the thing I am most looking forward to. It doesn't mean anything, but like it's that's where the star power matters. And just okay. like seeing LA Knight on TV doing something is fun. I think so, like, that... Honestly, me coming in, that's my most interesting thing. But I think them main eventing a SmackDown with this match would be way better than this being on a premium live event. It just doesn't really... I'd I'd much rather like John Cena and Solo Sokoa on this show, one-on-one, and then having the tag team match on TV to build to it or something like that. But regardless, um, so I I agree that it is a B-level premium live event. No question about that. But my grade going in, because I've learned my freaking lesson here, it is a B-plus expectation grade, 87 out of 100, but nevertheless, a B-plus going in. I do think that we're going to have a really good women's match, a really good, hopeful main event, Rollins-Nakamura, Judgment Day, Cody and Jay, that can certainly be great, and really, that's it. Those are the matches I'm looking forward to. There's only five, like I said, announced right now. I'm quite sure they will be adding one more at some point this week or Friday on SmackDown, so we're close. But all of you can give us your pre-show expectation grade again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That poll will be out on Saturday right before the show begins, and we will have a post-show poll as soon as WWE Fastlane ends. That poll will come out, of course, preceding our WWE Fastlane Instant Analysis Podcast coming up Saturday night right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And with that, we're going to wrap up this show with our set of reminders as usual. First, that this podcast is all about 
defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast so you can vote in the polls. You get news, episode drops, highlights, all that good stuff at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Please also remember, I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. We would greatly appreciate it. Bonus audio news posts, all that great stuff over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Don't forget, go back. If you have not yet, listen to episode 500 of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, our sit down interview with Brian Danielson, the NXT No Mercy instant analysis, the AEW Wrestle Dream instant analysis, and still coming up this week, special episode coming on Wednesday, Thursday, NXT and AEW, and then Saturday, the WWE Fastlane instant analysis. You do not want to miss any of it. Thank you once again to Vintage Chris Benini for joining the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. For Chris, this is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.